Hi there, this is Kent Roundy, a USH Med student. Got an interesting podcast today about ketamine and S-ketamine. A little bit of the history. Let's do some introductions, ending with you, Chris. Um, I'm Rebecca. I'm a third-year medical student. I'm Cody, also a third-year medical student. And I'm Jake, fourth-year medical student. And Chris, this is uh, your podcast. Why don't you do a little bit more of an introduction of yourself that we've heard before. Yeah, so my name is Chris, and I'm a third-year student at Rocky Vista. Um, and I chose this um, podcast, or I chose uh, ketamine and S-ketamine for this podcast, um, just because it's kind of like, it seems like a hot topic. Um, I've seen, like, um, advertisements for it, like, around town, and I wanted to learn more about um, the process of, like, kind of, like, the legality of, like, new drugs and what what it goes what uh what it takes to like get a new drug on the market and that whole process um just because i'm gonna eventually be the doctor prescribing medication so i wanted to learn this process so i think this is like a good drug to do that with i like that a lot and i i like the way that you went about this podcast trying to figure out um how how you look at a a medication that has kind of this dual pathway one pathway where there is an FDA-approved treatment and another pathway where there's off-label use and a lot more of that off-label use than on-label use, at least originally, initially. Now, that may change over time. Hard to know. And so I, I think this creates a really unique ability to look at on and off-label uses in medication and drug approval and a number of other things really like this topic. Before we start, and before I forget, one of the goals we've made of this podcast, and I always forget, is to have a case scenario right up front. So Jake, I think you've got a, a case scenario for us. Yeah, this was in the emergency department. Um, so This the, wasn't, just to be clear, this actually wasn't a real person and doesn't relate to anybody that you may or may not know. This is a synthesis of a number of cases that Jake saw. Yes, <laughs> correct. <laughs> so, uh, example case, we have a 32-year-old male uh, presents to the emergency department after his wife talked him back uh, from killing himself because he had a gun in his hand. Um, he shows up, pops up on the board. All of us attendings and residents and medical students look at each other because these are tough cases. All of us almost seems like try to avoid these type of cases because they're tough. Um, I ended up picking up this case and I went and saw him. He was active suicide ideation, um, started a few days ago, and he, he had a means and he had a way to do it. So in the ED, we like to then call our psych folks and get them admitted because obviously we can't send them home. They're in a dangerous state. In this particular situation, um, and often it is a situation, all the psych beds in the inpatient were full. So now what? We could uh, keep him in the ED for 24 hours, board him up, but like we talked about in the last few podcasts, these beds are very valuable to us and it's tough sticking someone in the ED for 24 hours and we were out of options. So standard of care you mentioned, which is get somebody in a safe place if they're acutely suicidal, right? Those are, those are some things that we talk about quite regularly. I will also want to review the criteria very briefly for depression. And uh, does anybody want to offer either Dice's Gaps or Siggy Caps? Both sound pretty good. All right, go ahead, Dice. Give me Dice's Gaps. Okay, so for D, it's the depressed mood. I is for interest loss. C is for cognitive slowing. E is for low energy. 
S would be for the sleep, affecting sleep. G for guilt. A for appetite changes. P for psychomotor slowing. And S for suicidal ideation. Very, very good. Now, the shelf exam has also, over the last number of years, had one very specific treatment. What, what is the treatment for somebody that is acutely suicidal? One Dead? treatment would be ECT. ECT, excellent. That's one of the things that you always need to remember, right? Now, uh, so we've talked about the criteria, the depression, the criteria for depression. We use Dice's Gaps. We're making a switch from Siggy Caps to Dice's Gaps. I like the rhyming in that, by the way. And we talked about the uh, principle that is tested on the shelf exam, which is ECT tends to be the answer for acute suicidality, right? I think there's also some data that ECT would be used in uh, pregnancy for severe depression or maybe psychotic depression. Um, but what about having other options, right? Not everybody is ready to choose ECT. And uh, what if you could do something in the emergency room? Uh, did you have ECT readily available in the emergency rooms you were at? Not in any of the emergency rooms that I was at. It was typically we would admit them to psych and they'd kind of handle it from there. And I think many hospitals don't even have access to ECT. I think in Utah, there are only a couple of places where you can get ECT done. So what if there were a way to have something that was as effective as ECT available to everybody? And I think we're gonna talk about that just a little bit right now. Um, let's start with the history of ketamine. And I want to start back at the time of PCP. And I think, Cody, you, you have that. Is that right? Yeah, so I got a couple things on that. So yeah, you really can't talk about the history of ketamine without talking about phencyclidine. I always say phenylcyclidine, but apparently it's phencyclidine. And that's also known as PCP. PCP. So there you go. So that was actually synthesized back in the 1950s. And they found that it actually had quite a few effects on some different animals. So that was kind of an interesting thing reading about that. That's worth reading. Why don't you? Did you? Do you have that in front of you? Yeah, I got it right here. Actually, read what they saw because I like that. Yeah. So they discovered ketamine. The let's see, the appearance of drunkenness in rodents, delirium in dogs, cataleptoid states in pigeons, and anesthesia in monkeys. And so then, of course, they had to take it to the next step and do anesthesia in humans, right? So. So yeah, I just found that as an interesting little tidbit. And yet PCP seemed to be, uh, shall we say, a little problematic for use in, in uh, anesthesia. Yeah, they said it was a little too intense and prolonged emergence delirium was the, the key reason why they didn't want to use it in human use. Although I'm sure there's a few more underlying reasons there. Just a little too strong. So what they did was they actually got an analog of it a shorter acting analog of PCP and that's actually what ketamine where it came from. We're gonna fast forward a little bit now um, to the 70s. Uh, by the way one one thing that I thought was very interesting the group that developed this they were out of Park Davis a pharmaceutical laboratory if I understand correctly yeah. and one of the researchers I think his last name was Domino uh, I think Luby was also one of those and we've mentioned Luby before in some of our discussions on schizophrenia and the role of PCP in the glutamate model. Um, but Domino's wife had this uh, description for ketamine that I think was kind of fascinating. What did, what did she call it? Dissociative? Uh, yeah. <laughs> did you have it there in front of you? <laughs> I did have it there. 
I did uh, too. Dissociative anesthesia. So, dissociative yeah. anesthesia. So it's a dissociative anesthetic, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Apparently, that dissociation might be enjoyable. So fast forward to the 70s, and uh, Chris, pick up the story for us, would you? Um, so yeah, in 1970, the FDA approved this drug for use as a general anesthetic. It, um, its first uses um, came about treating soldiers or use, anesthetizing soldiers um, on the battlefields in Vietnam. Um, it, was, it was a useful drug um, for soldiers in combat because it, it uh, was a, like a very fast-acting analgesic and it allowed the, the soldiers to like kind of escape and evade the situation without being, being completely um, sedated or unconscious to have the analgesic effects. Um, so it was used in Vietnam, um, and in the United in the states on the state side of that war, there was um, there was a lot of protests about the war going on, and those kind of that same group of people um, began using kind of like the the uh, the hippie group of people we can think of it as started using um, psychedelic drugs. We might call that counterculture now, but I'm not sure. I, I think uh, rebranding is always important. Yeah, we want to be as politically correct as possible. So uh, counter the counterculture group um, were using um, ketamine. And it, at that time, the DEA was not yet established. So there weren't as um, stringent um, limitations of how these drugs were, were how available they were. Um, and so people were using this as a sort of a psychedelic. I don't know if that's the right word, since it, it puts the patient in a, what we're calling as a dissociative um, state. Um, another um, word for that that's used kind of on the streets is a K-hole. That's synonymous with putting someone in a dissociative state. Um, and so people were using that, and it was also fairly available in veterinary clinics. It's still used um, on animals a lot for anesthesia. Um, and so due to that uh, ketamine and other drugs like that, the DEA was formed in 1973 um, to kind of like hammer down on the, the widespread use of these drugs. Um, and then interestingly, in the late 1970s, um, a few prominent um, doctors and medical researchers were personally experimenting with these drugs. Um, it seems like we've had that come up a couple of times, right? We, we've had that come up in our podcast with, uh, was it Jamin? Jamin on uh, hallucinogens. It was kind of fascinating. And, and it seems like it's coming up again that this dissociative anesthetic has maybe more in common with some of the hallucinogens than it does with maybe PCP, even though it's still a glutaminergic pathway. So, so anyway, uh, the story of scientists misusing the substances they're building Keep going. Yeah, yeah. So one um, doctor slash scientist named uh, John C. Lilly wrote a, a book about kind of the mystical his mystical experiences with ketamine. Um, he summarizes his experiences with ketamine um, in this sentence. He ex he uh, explains it as being a peeping tom at the keyhole of eternity. Um, so we can see kind of the mysticism there. Um, and then one in interesting story that I. Um, stumbled across was that um, a doctor, an anesthesiologist actually, um, and a prominent at the time writer and yoga teacher um, began, um, were friends and they began um, using ketamine together and taking kind of these trips together and 
after their second trip, they got engaged, and the the wife who who was just a writer, she wasn't a doctor in the medical field. She kind of got hooked on ketamine and was using it too much, and um, she actually disappeared in nineteen. Let's see, in nineteen seventy nine, she disappeared, and they didn't find her body until two years later. Uh, two years later, they found her skeleton in a forest. Um, and they found that she had taken ketamine and entered this dissociative state and then frozen to death out there in the forest. So I thought that was an interesting story and it kind of shows, I don't know, maybe a different time of medicine when people, when the doctors themselves were more experimental and things were a little more laid back. And I can also see how that kind of gives a, gives um, these drugs kind of like a, a bad reputation as far as kind of their lethality and the kind of more mystical uses of them and not the hard science uh, behind them. Did you have a comment? I was wondering while you were talking uh, about people that misuse drugs, you mentioned anesthesiology. I think it's um, reasonably known that anesthesiology has, because of the access to the substances that are potentially misused, uh, there's a higher rate of substance misuse among anesthesiologist or maybe more accurately if an anesthesiologist is going to lose their license it's usually related to diversion of that uh, of those controlled substances and I was wondering if you had any information about how often ketamine ended up being a substance that was diverted by anesthesiologists and what kind of risk there was for that I was looking at it for that briefly while you were talking about it I, I couldn't find anything immediately that I had read through or saw. So the one thing that popped up for me was uh, in 1999 is actually when ketamine became a Schedule Three drug. And looking at the background on that, when that was enacted, they were bringing up the diversion, um, the possible abuse, and specifically actually the too many burglaries for uh, veterinary clinics that held ketamine were some of the reasons why it kind of got to that point. So Fascinating. So interesting drug. It has uh, this potential for misuse. It was controlled by the FDA, and yet, somewhat like the story with hallucinogens, there's suddenly a rebirth in the interest of these uh, molecules. And you and I talked about this a little bit before the podcast. The first thing we found, the first article that was a randomized control trial came uh, somewhere around the year 2000. There was a randomized control trial with like 10 or 11, 15 people, something very small. We Neither of us could get our hands on the article, um, but then, Following that, there seems to be growing interest in the use of ketamine as a treatment for depression. Pick me up yeah. at the history at that point, Chris. Yeah, so in the 1990s, um, ketamine, there, there were some studies going on trying to use ketamine or seeing if it would work to treat chronic pain and other a few other um, uh, maladies, but they actually kind of unexpectedly stumbled upon the uh, use for depression. They were testing ketamine in um, uh, uh, studies of um, schizophrenia models, or they were using ke uh, ketamine to try to model schizophrenia, um, and then unexpectedly they found that um, some of the the uh, subjects improved in their like depression symptoms, or if they some of them had depression and they got better, um, and so from there, um, Yale started doing some research, um, and in February of 2000, they came out with the first um, published study showing that it improved um, people's treatment-resistant re uh, depression. So that was in 2000, and then since then, 
um, there's been a lot more um, like both research and use of that for depression. Um, around the 2000, 2010s, there's been like a, a huge surge in the off-label use of um, ketamine for like all kind of a laundry list of different psychiatric um, conditions, mainly um, treatment-related depression, but also things like uh, bipolar, PTSD, OCD, um, chronic pain, chronic migraines, um, things like that. Um, and I guess we could get into explaining what these, like the off-label use of ketamine and what these um, infusion clinics are and how prevalent they are, just so people know. Yeah, I think that's probably the way to do it. By the way, I made a mistake earlier. The Hallucinations podcast was with Rhett, not with Jamin. And uh, apologies to, to Rhett on that. Um, so, yeah, let's, we, we now have a study. We now have some data. I, I want to back up just a little bit and talk about treatment-resistant depression. You used that phrase a minute ago. And uh, one of the things that I, I looked for but didn't find immediately was the definition of treatment-resistant depression. And it seemed like there may have either been something in the dsm 4 or there's something in the 5 now, and I can't find what that is. Um, generally, though, the, the discussion about what it means to have treatment-resistant depression has not been very easy to define, right? Does that mean that you've tried an SSRI and an SNRI? Does it mean you've tried an SSRI and SNRI? and uh, maybe one of the medications that it was, is one of the old-time TCAs doesn't mean you've tried a monoamine oxidase inhibitor in addition to those, right? Have you been given a VNS? Have you tried ECT? All of these different things um, may have implications for what treatment-resistant depression is or isn't. Generally, for the studies we're going to look at a little bit later, having had two trials of antidepressants, is considered treatment-resistant depression for the studies that we'll look at today. And I think that's generally considered to be a reasonable um, way of approaching this. From our STAR-D data, and I think the Texas, um, the TMAP studies, which looked at depression, generally speaking, if you don't uh, have recovery from your symptoms with the first two treatments, it becomes increasingly more difficult to expect a recovery or have a recovery with the treatment options that we have available. So we have a large number of people with a very significant uh, condition, depression. We talked about that a little bit last time in the podcast with Becca, where we talked about the WHO ranking this the number one issue, right? And I don't remember what year they ranked it number one. I think those rankings will change a little bit from year to year. Um, but we have this very difficult illness. We have a very uh, life-threatening condition. There's a high rate of suicide. Our patients that don't recover well need something that helps them. And so treatment-resistant depression starts to become the balancing point, right? If you have somebody that's not getting well, what kinds of risks do we start taking with ketamine, a drug that has a fairly high uh, misuse liability? And how willing are we as a society to to treat treatment-resistant depression and increase that risk for society. And I think that's something that, that will become kind of a fulcrum for some of the discussion that follows. So ketamine, which is um, incredibly inexpensive, now is starting to be used based on some of these earlier studies in infusion centers. Tell us the history of infusion centers. Yeah, so in the um, 2010s, these infusion centers um, started popping up. Um, so just in Utah, there's at least 16 of them. In our area that we're at, Utah County, there's at least four, if you look on like Google Maps or something like that. So they're pretty prevalent, and I'm guessing um, also as prevalent or more prevalent in other states 
um, in the United States. Um, and so these clinics, um, yeah, so the doctors that, that uh, have um, started these are, I looked at kind of a national survey, they're primarily um, psychiatrists, and then also it's pretty common for the, um, them to be anesthesiologists and also emergency doctor physicians who, who are kind of running these clinics. Um, and those are, um, yeah, those are both anesthesiologists and EM doctors are both doctors that are pretty, like the most familiar with using ketamine. And so I think that's why they've um, started opening the, these clinics up. And so um, I guess I could like walk through, I listened to kind of a few interviews with different um, um, doctors and patients who have who, um, who are in these clinics. So I, I could give like a subjective kind of explanation of these. Um, yeah, take just a couple of minutes and, and people that are selling this service and that are putting information out there to sell this service, tell us what they say and the, and the people that they find to be on those, um, on those uh, podcasts or, or presentations, what do those patients say? So give us, give us that presentation. Yeah, um, so kind of I'll say this right off the bat, the insurance companies cover if barely any, if any, of the cost of these. So these, I'm thinking these are patients that have some um, money in their pockets that are willing to put out like three to four grand or maybe even more for this treatment. Um, so those, I don't know, that might give you a better idea of who's walking through these doors. Um, and so in order to receive this treatment, the patients in most of the clinics need to first have a consultation visit with the doctor, um, usually a week before their initial infusion. And so they'll, they'll go in and consult with the doctor and the doctor will make sure that they've kind of exhausted other depression treatments or treatments for other things such as like OCD or whatever they're being treated for, but primarily these are being used for depression. Um, so the doctor will make sure they've they're ready to take this step. Um, and um, yeah, so they'll, they'll make sure they're ready to take this step and then they'll do kind of like obviously a medical evaluation on the patients. And then a week later, the patient will come back and, um, and then they're to come back for the, their first infusion. Um, and so in total, the, these clinics do about like seven to eight different infusions over a period of like one to two months. Um, and so when the patient comes in for the, for the, uh, in, um, the infusion, they'll go in a room and it's just a room with, um, just them, no other patients. And there's usually like a, a nice recliner. And so the patient will like be reclined in the chair and they will put some headphones on the patient with like, um, relaxing music or something like that. And then also eye shades. So the patient doesn't see anything and then they'll be more relaxed or that's the goal of that. Um, then the doctor will begin the, inf the IV infusion of ketamine. And according to um, one of the doctors that I heard the interview from, he, he begins them on a very low dose of, the, of ketamine through the IV and then he titrates it up until the patient enters um, what he calls the dissociative state or dependent on the doctor, the the dissociative state that he thinks is the patient is in. Um, so that's kind of subjective. Like the, the whole dosing of it is pretty subjective. Um, and so 
then the doctor will leave the IV in for 40 to 45 minutes um, while the patient is sort of in this dissociative state, also known, as we said before, the, uh, the K-hole. So there, um, some people think of it as like being on a, a trip, um, but um, so they'll be in this dissociative state for like 40 to 45 minutes and then afterwards the, the doctor will continue to monitor them um, until they're able to go home and they, they're not allowed to drive that day and so like a family member or friend will um, pick them up and take them home and then in, in a couple of days after that they'll do the next infusion. Um, one anecdotal story from a lady, um, she was having uh, like severe depression and she was had a complete suicide plan um, all laid out and she decided to, or someone tipped her off to these clinics in which she, she hadn't heard of this treatment before and so she decided to try these out and according to her story, um, the first couple of infusions helped her out and like greatly relieved her depression. Um, but then on the third um, infusion, she had what she described as a breakthrough moment, um, sort of how they use that that term in um, psychotherapy. So she had what she called a breakthrough and she's um, kind of relived or re re-visioned um, um, a traumatic event from her childhood and was able to like process that better and after that she continued the rest of the treatments and then she she now um, goes back every few months or so to these clinics for a maintenance dose of ketamine and that is dependent on when she when she starts feeling depressive symptoms then she'll go and get um, uh, like a maintenance infusion, and so 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 big problem that's kind with of the big picture. big problem with uh, infusion clinics, right? There's not a drug company making money on this. Ketamine costs pennies for the vial, right? It's not very expensive, and to fill that void, in comes Johnson and Johnson, right? J and J, or Janssen, I think Johnson and Johnson, I believe, owns Janssen, and decides they're going to develop a delivery system also using uh, a ketamine enantiomer, and we now have S-ketamine, also called Spravato, available. Do you have a little bit of the history for uh, how this drug came about? Um, so yeah, I think, like you said, it came about because there wasn't, so they, they isolated the S-enantiomer because there wasn't any way to make money or get money in order to fund research, more research on ketamine, um, ketamine's use in depression or in those psychiatric illnesses. Um, and so, yeah, the, the company um, Johnson & Johnson um, has put a lot of money into, into this. They've done at least like 30 studies um, into um, this enantiomer that they, that they isolated as ketamine, and then the trade name of that is Spravato. Um, so yeah. now, so now we have this this medication. I, I have to admit, I've had a lot of people call me. Hey, what do you think about ketamine clinics? And I said, I don't know. I, I hear it seems to work, but I don't have a lot of basis for the science behind this. Um, as we looked into the articles, I I started to develop opinions 
and they were a little bit different than the opinions I had before, but they were also somewhat different than the opinions that have been expressed in editorials, right? There was a lot of editorial noise about uh, the approval of Spravato for treatment of treatment-resistant depression, and I've been surprised by that. Reading the studies, I have mixed thoughts. Now, th there are a lot of studies that J&J has done, and I, I think you pointed that out. I looked at, uh, let's see, there's the, I've got one of them here, the Aspire trial. There's one and two on that, and I think the Aspire trials were the first trials that were used to get the uh, FDA approval for treatment of treatment-resistant depression. It was based on four small, small trials that had preceded that, um, some exploratory trials. I think I, I read a couple of those, including the Canuso trial, um, so Aspire 1 and 2. Um, and one was, uh, I, don't, I don't have down who did uh, trial number one. Um, no, I'm sorry, the Aspire trials were for suicidality, right? So these are patients that intend to suicide. And that's a little bit different than the trials that there were the sustained trials. These were open label uh, continuations of the medication. That's also different than the transform trial. And I think it was transform one through three that were used to get the original FDA indication for treatment resistant depression. Does that sound familiar? Okay, yeah. if anybody is still listening to the podcast with all those names, I apologize. So let's just talk briefly about those trials. And I think, um, I think I'll tackle the trials, and then if you wouldn't mind just uh, jumping in when, when there's something that I've either missed or that maybe I, I should have talked about. So, so first of all, there's this background theory that um, neurotrophic factors, synaptogenesis, or maybe something unique about glutaminergic transmission, these are maybe factors that... Um, are the cause of this change in mood associated with glutamate. Not clear to me that that's the case. Those are the things that are noted in the trial without a lot of evidence behind that. I think, Becca, you looked at something else, uh, the amount of time that somebody actually actually spends dissociating um, is or um, in a dissociative state might be the key factor in whether or not this is, has an antidepressive effect or not. And you looked at a number of articles and I think you can summarize those in about one statement, right? Tell me what you found. We're not sure yet. I think it's the, <laughs> the final conclusion. I looked at some articles between 2014 and 2020, and even in just the two 2020, uh, articles from the year 2020, they were a little bit contradicting, and I think we're just, I'm not sure. <laughs> Mechanism of action, why this affects depression, we're still a little ways away from understanding. Yeah. Yet somehow we think it does, right? And so the first trial, th these are very difficult trials, by the way, and this is one of the things that really changed my mind. If you have somebody, for example, with the Aspire trials, if you have somebody that's actively suicidal and you don't have any treatment for them and you have a study intervention, you're going to be in trouble, right? So one of the things I really liked about these trials is they set up two pathways. One pathway was we're going to give everybody a new antidepressant, right? That's standard of care. Get somebody on an antidepressant if depression is the factor. Get them in a hospital so they can be uh, safe. So treat, admit, monitor, when safe, go home. Right? And so on top of this, they added a placebo of, uh, of an intranasal treatment or active treatment with ketamine, S-ketamine, I should say. And what they found was that in the Aspire trials, at least in Aspire 1, which was uh, one of the trials that was designed to look for a benefit in reducing suicidality, they found no difference. And they said, you know, this is kind of difficult because 
we're not sure if it's, or no difference between uh, the ketamine, as ketamine treatment and the placebo treatment. And they thought maybe the difference is because we have really this amazing wraparound treatment. We've got, we're doing everything we can to make sure that nobody commits suicide. We're just looking for the signal in all of this. So everybody's starting an antidepressant. Everybody's on esketamine, or I'm sorry, half the group is on esketamine. Everybody is getting uh, admitted to the hospital. This is really, really closely monitored. And they ended up uh, finding that there was no difference in, in suicide rates. There were a couple of things that were really interesting that did come out of that, though. Again, looking at patients who intend to kill themselves, almost 30% of those patients that were in this trial had attempted to kill themselves in the previous month. I can tell you that nobody really wants to do a trial with suicidal people because that really, really messes up your data, right? These guys took on, th this group, uh, J&J, took on a really, really tough treatment group and didn't seem to weed out the risk factors that, that might make the trial look better. So I was really impressed with that. Now the other thing that came to, uh, there were a couple of other things that I noticed in these trials. One was that uh, ketamine makes people dizzy, right? So I don't know if you had that experience in the emergency room, people get ketamine doses and they're dizzy, uh, they dissociate, they, they have depersonalization symptoms, um, all very common, right? But considering that this is a model for schizophrenia that we've talked about, not a single comment on psychosis in the paper. You have to actually dig clear into the uh, additional information that's not part of the original paper, but part of a um, part of a, um, extra downloadable information that you can find, but hard to find. So one of the things that that I think I asked you guys as a group to look at was the emergence of psychosis in uh, patients that were uh, pediatric age, because I think that signal is stronger in pediatric age. And in addition to that, I think, Becca, you found some concerning thoughts about, or some concerning data about suicide. Do you want to tell me about both those things? I didn't look as much into the psychosis of it, but as far as using esketamine and ketamine in pediatric patients, um, so first I looked on um, the prescribing information for Spravato, and in the boxed warning, it says that um, it, Spravato is not approved for use in pediatric patients. And then later, if you scroll down, it goes into detail about why it is not approved. And they did a study, in, in their study it included 4,500 pediatric patients. Um, and they found that um, compared to um, placebo, there was an increase in suicidal ideations. If you were under 18, they found 14 patients per every 1,000 patients. And they had an increase in suicidal ideations. And then it was the opposite in patients over 65 where they actually had a decrease in suicidal ideations. Um, oh. um, I also looked into uh, a, a current clinical trial, that's an ongoing trial, um, and basically they're still in the recruitment phase where they're recruiting um, pediatric patients with a diagnosis of major depressive disorder um, in the ages of 9 to 17, and they're basically screening them first and then also doing a double-blind double treatment where they either give them esketamine intranasally or they give them um, a placebo. And they're still doing the study on it and they're not sure, but basically this is also looking into how um, esketamine can, or how it can influence suicidal ideations in pediatric patients. So if that's an ongoing study in more data sure, to come, yeah. but definitely some risks for using this in a population uh, that is under 18 or 16? 18. 18. 
Um, mm. the, other th the other thing that I thought was interesting about these studies, so the Aspire 2 trial also, which was, as I understood it, a pivotal, a pivotal trial to get an indication for treatment of suicidality, uh, found no difference in patients that were given S-ketamine and the uh, new antidepressant or modification of the antidepressant treatment and hospitalization, right? So it had almost the exact same finding. Both of those studies had a reduction of about four on the MADRAS, uh, Montgomery Asperg depression rating scale, uh, three to four. And so I was, I was perplexed. I, I was stumbling, right? So I knew that this medication seemed to have, uh, that this treatment based on the infusion data seemed to have a fairly rapid onset, that it seemed to help people that were suicidal. We had heard anecdotal reports of it being used in the emergency rooms in the area. There are infusion centers everywhere. What am I missing? I, I couldn't figure it out because as far as I could tell, the data for a treatment for treatment of acute suicidality was a bust. Then I looked at the package insert. So let's talk about what this medication is FDA approved to treat. And you guys got that down? What's the first thing it's approved to treat? Yeah, so it's approved to treat two things. Um, one, major depressive disorder, or uh, I'll just say depression, um, sorry. Treatment. Tre treatment resistant <laughs> depression. There we go, so that's number one. And then number two is major depressive disorder with um, suicidal intent slash behavior. Yeah, so it's not designed to treat suicidality, which is what I had always thought. It's designed to treat somebody that is suicidal who is depressed. So it's designed to treat the depression of somebody that's suicidal. There's nothing in the data that I can find that says that it changes the suicide outcomes. Everything that I read suggests that um, this medication, when used in the right setting, could potentially speed up the recovery. You start with the ketamine and the antidepressant at the same time. The ketamine gives you an immediate response of almost two points on the madras. And then the antidepressant, which kicks in somewhere around uh, four to six weeks, according to the shelf exam, right? Um, then you start having that coverage. And in theory, at uh, like six months, a year, what kind of outcomes do we have? Or not in theory, what does the data say? Um, so yeah, I looked at this, this study. So the synapse study um, on S-ketamine shows that after um, 74 days after being treated with S-ketamine, it showed that 65% um, of the patients had a 50% decrease um, in their, or let's see, 50% decrease in their MADRAS score, which is a very significant decrease. Yeah, that's a big response. And there was also a fair number that had recovery that was sustained, I believe. I found a different study. I was looking at the sustained studies. So there was a sustained one and a sustained, sustained two. And by the way, I think all of these studies are funded by J&J. &J. So kudos to J&J &J who did a good job naming studies with sustained, synapse. Um, what was the other one? Aspire. Um, th these are uh, great study names. And I think up to a year, they found similar numbers that 75% uh, of the people that were that had started on this protocol maintained their wellness over that period of time, whether that was full recovery or whether that was, uh, whether that was remission or reduction of symptoms, either one of those. Um, that, that's a pretty good sized number. And uh, uh, also considering that it's $500 a dose, we need to figure out who it is that benefits from that, that treatment because I think that that year-long treatment was every two weeks for maintenance. 
but I couldn't tell for sure based on the, the methods in the study. Do you have any sense of how often uh, for maintenance use of ketamine with the S-ketamine um, treatment, how often that was used? I'm not sure. I know it was at least monthly. I want to say that in the first two months, it was like in the beginning, it was used a lot more. And then, yeah, the maintenance was at least monthly. So I would recommend that anybody that starts, well, first of all, anybody that uses this medication has to go through the REMS program, right? So anybody that uses this treatment has to go through the REMS program to be able to use uh, ketamine, S-ketamine, in the nasal formula. You have to have some things that you can prove, uh, such as having a safe, having two keys, or something along those lines. There, there's actually a pretty big process to being able to prescribe this. Did you look at that process at all or, or look at the REMS program? Um, yeah, a little bit of it. Um, so, yeah, so first, REM start, stands for Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy, and I wasn't familiar, familiar with this before um, looking at this topic, but the drug that they commonly cover in, like, second year med school is Accutane, and that one has the iPledge program, so I, I think that's in, like, the step one materials that people, students might be familiar with that, so this is the same kind of um, program, and so, yeah, in order to in order to use, um, or in order to prescribe S-ketamine, um, and actually it's not completely true because se since this has been, this drug was released in um, March, the, the REMS program for this drug has kind of been on hold or you don't really have to uphold it as stringently because of COVID. Um, so all this might not be completely true right now. Um, so there's some modifications in the process. I think you still yeah. have to have the REMS uh, paperwork completed to use it, but there okay. might be some changes in the way the care is delivered. I think there's still requirements in, in having to have, it, it, I think it has to be something that's really hard to steal, right? Like we had the problems with the, with the that you mentioned before with uh, uh, people breaking into veterinarian clinics. And I think one of the things that they're trying to do is minimize theft of, of this um, misusable substance that was previously stolen quite a bit. Okay. So, so I think, I don't know that that changes, but there might be some changes that have happened with REMS, such as um, requirements for face-to-face -face visits versus uh, duration of face-to-face -face visit and those kinds of things. Because there, there are a lot of different kinds of requirements that end up okay. being changed a little bit by the face-to-face -face requirement, probably. But I don't know for sure. Yeah, and so just a few things I'll cover with being in the program. The, uh, the patient has to come in to the clinic or a pharmacy or hospital or whoever's prescribing it, and they have to be administered or the the fa the uh, the staff have to administer to the patient and then the patient can't leave until they've been monitored there in the facility for two hours or longer and then when they're released they're not able to drive for the rest of the day somebody has to um, drive them home what is that monitoring for because i'm wondering if that's the part that got modified a little bit if there's a responsible uh person with that, that can do the monitoring, if, because if it's monitoring for what happens if you wander out and freeze in the cold kind of thing, right, versus some of the dissociative things that might be more worrisome, um, yes. versus vitals, temperature, things along those I lines. I think it's just generally their mental state needs to be monitored so they don't, um, like, stay in a more psychotic state, so their mental state needs to be monitored, and then their basic vital signs, or their vital signs, um, like one one uh, thing that this drug causes like is short-term um, hypertension and so that's one thing that needs to be monitored were there strokes associated with this 
with that uh, spike in hypertension. I know there was some papers that talked about it, but I didn't see a lot of uh, data that said how risky that was. I didn't see anything on that. I know that the patients need to be like, before being inducted in these studies, they, um, let's see, they, they need to have a blood pressure of like 140 over 90 or less, so they can't really have, have hypertension and be a risk. And just to clarify, I think hypertension is 130 over 80 now or 85, which is it? The JNCC changes those guidelines periodically. Yeah, in the American 130 over 80. 130 over 80 now. So, so they, they need to at least have it moderately controlled. But, but that's okay. hypertension, I think, is still by definition. Uh, you're hypertensive if you're 140 over 90. And I think one other thing with that is the patient has to be on an, on an oral antidepressant concurrently while using the ketamine. And that's consistent with all the studies too, right? The Aspire yeah. study, the transform, or the transform, and the sustain, and the synapse studies. I think all of these studies, standard of care was in, was maintained for those studies because it, you know, um, the population they treated was very sick. They they didn't want to have those patients purely placebo treated. Um, what else? I, I know I keep interrupting you. Sorry. Um, that, those were the main ones. And they, they have to have been, they have to have failed at least two other oral antidepressants before starting, before doing this. And, and that fits with the treatment-resistant depression yeah. labeling um, as well that we talked about earlier. One of the things that I thought was really interesting was that uh, this is a big change. And across the board, the differences between this and just an antidepressant they really didn't stay significantly or statistically significant over you know, 90 days, two years, right? The, the difference between this and just a treatment with an antidepressant. That, that use of ketamine, the way I looked at the data, seemed to be primarily immediate. There's an immediate benefit, and then what do you do? And I, I felt like even though there's studies that you can continue using this, I'm left with a lot of questions about where you should use, use this, when you should use this, the cost of the use, for the benefit that you might get out of it, and I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of noise about this in the in the literature. So I'm I'm interested to see where this goes. I think sometimes it's easy to stand back stand back and throw stones at a treatment, unless you're in the trenches and treating people that just can't get relief from depression. And balancing those things, I think, is very very difficult when you're not right there. What are your thoughts about that, Chris? Um. Yeah, I think there's more questions than answers with this topic. Is I've um, read about it. Um, I think, yeah, one thing that I think that is is good is like the kind of the like resurgence of research on kind of these drugs that were that we turned away from in the like '70s or '80s. Um, and so I think that's good to like reevaluate these and see if they can be used. I think it was the uh, hallucinogens podcast. You guys mentioned that within like a year, the drug MDMA is supposed to um, be on the market for PTSD. Is that right? Or at least they're they're doing trials on that. I don't. I I think that there's hope that that it would get there. Uh, again, I I think it's a hard hurdle to overcome with with substances that have such high abuse liability, right? I, um, I, I don't know the answer yet. I, I, 
I think there's something there that's beneficial, and I suspect what will happen ultimately is they're able to find some sort of downstream receptor or effect that they can that a drug company could isolate and use without okay. the same liability. But I think there's a lot of interest in seeing how you can treat uh, debilitating conditions with substances that you know have been used in the past along those lines and seem to show something anecdotally and and you know observationally. Yeah, I think it's interesting using. Um, using these kind of old drugs for new purposes and um, yeah one thing we we sort of touched on this but one thing I don't have any answers with this but is it's just the kind of the uh, how do you say it? like the the difference or kind of knowing the mechanism of action of ketamine or esketamine on depression because um, we had talked about the dissociative states and it seems like the in the infusion clinics and what I've heard from the uh, the doctors that run those is that they believe that the the actual the patient that being in the dissociative state and kind of being on that trip is like very healing for the patient and that that does a lot of the work as far as treating the depression and so i think it would be interesting to look at in the future studies that come out on that or to clear that up as far as like the actual dissociative state if how much of effect that's having on the patients versus just the biology and stuff that's going on in their brain that the patient isn't aware of. At least to this point, based on what Beck is telling us, that's a pretty mixed signal at the moment without a clear answer. I, I usually forget to ask somebody something that they did some work on or prep on. W what have I forgot to, to check on that you guys prepped for or looked into or, or you know, found very interesting that, that we talked about in preparation for the podcast that I haven't yet kind of talked about? I'm getting thumbs up from you guys. That doesn't always translate well to a mic, but uh, let's kind of, uh, let's close it down then. What was the most interesting thing? What was your takeaway? Um, what was it that you really liked about this? Uh, let's do last thoughts. Uh, Becca, let's start with you. Um, I don't think this is, I think it's really cool to listen to, and obviously not, I don't think something we're gonna see on the boards or shelf just yet, but I do wanna add something to Jake's scenario at the beginning. Um, I did come across a question um, where it was similar to that, we're not, not quite similar, but it was kind of the question, what do you do when a patient comes in that has um, suicidal ideations or um, suicidal attempt but denies it and says, oh, I just accidentally you know, fell off or slipped or something like that. And I think um, at least the question that I saw was to admit them. And so I think that's the one board slash shelf that might come up. There are a fair number of questions that come down to if somebody is at risk for suicide, that's an admission and that's a, that's a good answer. And then if they force you to pick a treatment, generally speaking, I believe ECT is the treatment mm -hmm. that you should be looking at uh, if somebody's acutely suicidal. So, um, and then I think there's also a caveat with it. There, there's, there's a question that comes up with why suicide might be the best treatment with one other aspect in play, and I don't remember what that is at the moment. Any of you guys remember that? And then, of course, uh, Dice's Gaps, five of nine, is always important to remember. We reviewed that. Yep. And we also talked a little bit about ketamine use as an induction agent, uh, open the, the actual FDA approvals for that, which may start showing up on the test. Remember, it's not approved to treat de uh, suicidality. It's a approved to treat treatment-resistant depression or depression with suicidality. And I think the idea behind depression with suicidality is that it's not making suicidal ideation worse. You can actually use this without escalating suicide uh, thinking or risk, uh, even if you're not 
minimizing it. We know it's safe in that setting. And just to clarify, that's the S-ketamine. And that's the S-ketamine. And ketamine itself, thank you very much. That's an important distinction. And the ketamine itself is approved for treatment of? Yeah, there's several things. Um, in the emergency room, we would use it for uh, RSI rapid sequence intubation. Instead of you know doing an automatate and a succinylcholine, we'd use ketamine. Okay, hold on. I'm going to ask, is that FDA approved, though? You know. <laughs> <laughs> See, and one of the things we've tried very hard to do is always stick with the FDA approval, even though it's used for a lot of things. I think the only FDA approval for ketamine is? The induction and maintenance of general anesthesia. But then it has a lot of the off-label uses listed here. And I was surprised that that was the only on-label use, but many, many off-label uses. So, but you were going to go into a list of all the places you use it, right? <laughs> yeah, so we'd use it to, you know, start off intubations, I guess the induction, um, and then we'd use it for procedural sedation, just a less dose. If we were going to pop a shoulder back into place, uh, we'd, you know, use some ketamine to kind of put them into that dissociative state, pop it back in, and it, it worked surprisingly pretty well. <laughs> Patients don't yell as much when they're not paying attention <laughs> to their body, do they? In fact, that was something that I thought was interesting, you looking at... Uh, uh, trials.gov, which is a registration site, right? If you really want to publish your data anymore, you need to say, hey, we're doing this study, so watch for us, instead of saying, oh, guess what? We did this study, and here's the data, and it's good, and we haven't hidden any other studies, right? So there's at least one trial that you found looking at the use of ketamine um, that will be used for reduction of... Fractures in pediatric patients. So we'll see how that uh, plays out as well. Um, I, I know that uh, pain clinics use it a great deal. I'm not sure there's an FDA indication for that either. Um, I think burn clinics use it. Uh, I, I don't think there's a way to debride, debride skin without ketamine. Uh, and uh, at the moment, I think a lot of people would perhaps consider that to be inhumane to not use ketamine when you're debriding uh, skin from a severe burn victim. So a lot of uses, but the very specific three FDA indications we have, right? And one is for induction of anesthesia, and the other two are related to treatment-resistant depression. Well, one is ketamine, two are S-ketamine, treatment-resistant depression, and treatment of depression with suicidality. Not, of, not treating suicidality, treatment of depression with suicidality. Uh, very good. I like that. Let's see. Any other takeaways or any other comments? Um, I think one more thing that could possibly show up on boards, but probably not the psych shelf, is that ketamine is an NMDA antagonist. I don't think we mentioned that yet. Thank you. Very, very good. All right, uh, Cody. Uh, just kind of going along with the, what Becca just said, just with ketamine being the NMDA antagonist and also how it's the dissociative anesthetic and possibly sympathomimetic effects are just some of those board-style associations. If you look at the PCP podcast when we talk about the biochemistry of PCP and some of the, mo the analogs of, of that group of medications, you start seeing uh, a whole lot of monoamine activity with, uh, with uh, the neurons and, and it's, you know, I, I didn't make it down that rabbit hole this time, but maybe another time. <laughs> Nora K-hole. Uh, Jake. I'm excited to see where ketamine goes. Um, it seems like there's a lot of potential in some different aspects. Um, just the research isn't quite there yet. It's just, you know, like we talked about, hard to do research um, with these certain medications. But it seems like a lot of promise, especially in the ED setting where I'm heading. Um, and just, I know the uh, local EMS teams here just started carrying ketamine just last year. So it kind of seems to be a new and emerging thing. 
from an old drug, kind of like we talked about yesterday with Drupal. <laughs> yeah, I think they're using it for um, tranquilization in a sense, where you have people that are agitated and they can't help. I think there was a death associated with the use, so I think that might get reviewed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We're not laughing about the death, by the way. We're, uh, I think we're uh, laughing at how difficult it is to have uh, healthcare in some settings where you have an agitated patient. You're just trying your hardest to, 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 to deliver care. And the moment you feel like maybe you have a good strategy, it ends up having unintended consequences or, or severe risks. And, and working out all of those details, uh, I'm glad that's not me. Absolutely. <laughs> that's, a, that's a difficult, difficult job. Uh, take home, Chris. Um, yeah, I learned a lot um, through this process. I learned that I need to get better at reading research articles. Um, I feel like there's, I don't know, with topics like this and being a physician, there's, there's a lot of reading that you need to do and a lot of different things to understand like there's so much that goes on with with some with like getting this drug to the market um and just kind of understanding those different things i, I was my eyes went wide when you said that that wasn't me saying yes you do that was me saying oh my gosh we <laughs> all do just just to be clear yeah. um because i thought i thought these studies were actually very difficult to read and i think part of the problem i had is i went in with uh preconceived notions about these medications having a lot of risk and the reward being unclear. What I left with was these medications have an effect size that is meaningful. They might compare favorably to the use of antidepressants and the risk versus uh, benefit ratio, um, you know, that, that, that's something that's out of my pay grade, so to speak, because we're opening up another pathway for ketamine to be diverted in society and we're opening up another pathway for people that haven't had very good relief for their depression uh, to get treatment. And in fact, within the subtext of a lot of the articles I read was this idea that perhaps the most sick of the patients among us, the patients that are most cognitively affected already, might be the patients that benefit the most from ketamine. So this might be something that starts to cover that gap between SSRIs and ECT requiring depression, and hopefully in a way that you know, we can manage without disrupting society like we have with opioids. But totally agree. These were, these were great articles and ones that made me stretch myself as I read them. I, I don't think that was just you. Other take-homes? Um, I think that, that's it. I, I'm curious to see like, what comes out of it in the future as far as this drug and other drugs like it. It'd be really nice if we had something that was sort of uh, as benign as Prozac and you know, 10 times better. But I think I think maybe that drug is Prozac, and now we've got to find the stuff that picks up the the things on the on the edges. And uh, I don't know. I, I wouldn't mind something still being better, right? Yeah. Um, good point. All right, guys. I, what a wonderful podcast. Thank you for all the work you guys did. I think this was. Uh, I, I can speak. I think for all of us that this podcast took you into places as you were reading about it that you didn't expect to go. It took you to places where you learned things about ketamine that you didn't expect you'd ever need to know. And hopefully it left you with a better understanding of uh, medicine in general. And I really appreciate you guys jumping in on this. Thank you very much. On that note, team out. Team, team out. out.